Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Uh, I'm good. And one of the reasons why I'm good is uh, we are continuing our series of uh, Summer of SCOTUS. Um, is this Summer like of part- SCOTUS colon not the cases? Not the cases. Part <laughs> duh. Part two. I don't okay. know what part we're on at this point. I think yeah, we're on part two, but yeah, because they we, may we, not come out quite in order, y'all. Sorry. Yeah, Sometimes yeah, that. But, yeah, I mean, you know, some of that, you know, is you know technical. Some of it is post production. Post production, yeah. <laughs> but you know, some of it is, you know, something will happen, and we'll like. But we already have. We've already recorded an episode that talks about X. So why don't we just go ahead and drop that, right? Just right. Make it public, right? And um, our today's today's um uh scotus episode is it's um we are recording at the end of the school year and this is kind of an apt time to talk about this because (laughs) what's happening in the schools right now is testing and if you know anything about the sols if you know anything about the the sort of are you on level for your grade testing it is nerve wracking for all parties involved, students that are taking the test, parents that have a student taking the test, teachers that are administering the test, right? Everybody's freaked out. Um, and as, as a university, we're also, we've just finished finals, which is another opportunity for people to freak out over a test. Yes. And so we decided we would talk about SCOTUS tests. And I, I was thinking about the funny ones, but I noticed that in your notes you have sort of the serious. <laughs> these are the these are the bars of test first that we should talk about before we talk about sort of the more the, the ones with the catchy names. The ones with the catchy <laughs> names and the ones that come from specific cases. Cases, yes. Right, because we only yes. have one that that comes from a specific case of the bars. What I think of the bars that you have to pass, or the or the levels. So. Yeah, so in, in, in the, uh, for listeners to give you some context, the Supreme Court over time has created various tests or standards um, as a way to provide guidance to the public, to the government, um, regarding what the constitution means in practice, right? And especially to the lower courts, right? A lot of those yes. are sort of handed down to the lower courts as let's let's not have this be as vague as it, and we're going to get to vagueness later, but yeah, let's but, not I mean, have this be as random across the courts. We want the courts to decide things more coherently across yes. all the different courts. Yeah. So that some no. guy in Montana doesn't find it doesn't find a thing one way and some guy in North Carolina doesn't find it a different way yeah we don't want a federal district court judge who's holding who's conducting a trial to go ahead and say the establishment clause of the first amendment means x but a district court judge in North Carolina say no the establishment (laughs) clause means y 
right now because that's only going to end up with the with the scotus yeah eventually it's going to end up in front of the supreme court and the supreme court's going to be like are we once again looking at the meaning of the establishment clause didn't we work this out before okay so we're going <laughs> to somebody get the, check our notes Is yeah, it, don't so we have some notes so we're going to get to those kind of sort of clause case specific tests in just a moment but first as nia pointed out over time the supreme court um, has come up with tests or types of review of government laws and regulations okay so in in, in um the, the most general the one that's applied to most laws and government regulations is known as the rational basis test, okay? And it's a somewhat easy standard to meet, Neo, because basically all the court is asking is, did the government body that issued the law or the regulation have some sort of rationality behind the law or the regulation? Doesn't have to be the best one, Okay. Doesn't have to. It doesn't be. have to be the most rational. Yes. Okay. It just has to be a rational, a a, a reason for doing something. Yes. Because we kind of sort of hope we're putting this law in place because don't feed the bears. We're putting this law in place because one, when you feed bears, people die, and two, when you feed bears, bears get sick because we feed them bad things. Here, have some popcorn, bear. Right. Whatever. So that's why we're, that's the reason. Is it the, oh, most okay. is it the most effective solution to the problems that arise when humans interact with bears? Maybe, maybe not, but it's not the job of the courts to come up with the best solution. I see. You know, they the just court, have to say whether there was actually a reason behind the law. Behind it, right? Or if you just say... I'm going to make a law that that prevents John Augenbaugh from being feeding bears just because then the court would say, no, 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 no. You can't permit you can't permit everybody else and not permit him without a reason. Yeah, they're, they're, for doing they're, they're, yeah. And, and again, it doesn't have to be the best one. Right. The assumption of the rational basis test, Nia, is in a democracy the people's elected representatives have the authority to regulate behavior. It's not the job of the courts, okay? Okay. Because the courts, particularly in our federal system, the courts are populated by people not picked by the public. Right. So we're talking about a democracy, right? So that's the, the, the basic, if you will, theory or logic behind the rational basis test. And by the way, it's a pretty easy standard to meet, right? Yeah. What yeah, was I mean, your reason? My reason was X. Okay, you're done. Like, and, 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 and as, we've, as we've pointed out in this podcast, because we've focused on laws and regulations, most laws and regulations actually start off with like a mission or purpose that explains the reason. Right. They're not always clear, but nevertheless, <laughs> okay. Right, okay, so that's the lowest level. That's the lowest bar to get over. 
Yes. And okay. it's about three inches off the ground. Yeah, pretty much. Boop, yes. And you're over and you're done. Yes. Okay. Okay. Now, the next most rigorous review of laws and regulations is known as intermediate scrutiny. And basically, the government has to satisfy two questions. First, does the law or regulation further an important government interest? Second, it must do so in a manner that is substantially related to that interest. Okay. Can you give me an example? Yes. There is a case from 1976, Craig versus Bourne. In Craig versus Bourne, the state of Oklahoma passed a law that would raise the drinking age for males from 18 to 21, but would keep the drinking age for females at 18. <gasps> That's a terrible idea. And the logic of the state of Oklahoma was they had some statistical evidence to, that demonstrated the young males were more likely to drink and then get behind the wheel of an automobile and cause accidents and damage to property and harm other people's lots. Okay. Okay. So they treated the genders differently because Oklahoma thought they had evidence to suggest that there was a public policy problem. So the case goes to the Supreme Court. Um, Craig uh, challenged the law. Bourne was uh, the governor of Oklahoma. So Craig challenges the law. He's a male. He was a male. And Craig argued that this violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And the Supreme Court applied intermediate scrutiny to the Oklahoma law. Now, what the court said was, Oklahoma satisfied the first part of the, the test. It had a legitimate interest in decreasing the number of, of DUI-related accidents, driving right. under the influence. Okay. But it failed the second prong of the test because they couldn't show that the law was substantially related to that interest because statistically, young men were less than one-tenth of one percent more likely to drink and then get behind the wheel of an automobile. So it was a tiny, that there was, was a, not going to solve the problem. Yeah, there, it was not. The statistical difference suggested that the law was not substantially related. <laughs> okay. 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 Um, and intermediate scrutiny arose, Nia, in the early to mid-1970s. Uh, women's rights advocates brought cases to the Supreme Court where they wanted the court to show, to uh, enforce or impose upon gender-based laws, the same kind of scrutiny that race-based laws received. 
And what the Supreme Court did was basically split the difference. Okay. So a little bit harder than the rational rational test. but not as hard as, as the next level of next level of review, which is known as strict scrutiny. Okay. Okay. Now, um, can we stop? Can we pause there for just a moment? Because I would like sure. to hold forth upon this this law. That law was stupid. Because <laughs> first of all, either raise the drinking age for everybody like i'm with i'm with craig on the hey 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 whoa 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 we can't just punish based on gender like that's not any woman who says that that's a good idea hasn't really thought that through about what that's going to mean in terms of women's women's rights right we if we want equal treatment before the law we have to also have equal responsibility before the law I will say to you that I personally think that women should have to register for the draft. If you're going to draft men, you should draft women, right? It's my personal opinion. And I know there's a thousand reasons why other people were like, that's a terrible idea. But interestingly enough, Nia, the Oklahoma law was not about women. It was based on a stereotype of young men. Right. But what it ended up doing was saying, was okay, not treating but, those two equally before the law. And I don't think okay, that's cool. and, and that's fine. But part of the logic of women's rights groups were to bring laws, to challenge laws in front of the Supreme Court that actually treated men differently, i.e. worse, to force the court to go ahead and reconsider laws that actually treated women differently. Right. It was it was a great legal strategy, and it was one that many scholars um, uh, uh, believe was hatched by former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> okay, because what better way to force an all male Supreme Court to recognize that gender differences written into the law not only harm women. They also harm men. Right. And, and Oklahoma stepped right up to the plate and gave them <laughs> a really good, okay. We think about this. And they went, thank you very much. Much, yes. We will see you at the Supreme Court. We'll see you at the Supreme Court, right? But and I mean, I think that's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's yeah. not, it was not fair. It was not fair to young men. No, One, it wasn't. because statistically there's no, there's no real difference. Well, and and, that and was, two, yeah. it also, you're right, assumes a whole lot about men and drink driving and the whole idea of, you know, uh, that women are what shrinking flowers who aren't going to drink and drive. I'm like, oh, I know some women who've made well, that I mean, bad I mean, choice. I mean, the, 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 you know, there's a stereotype about genders in regards to, you know, uh, women mature faster um uh, they are less likely to engage in risky dangerous behavior um than men are um that you know men as a gender okay particularly when they are younger are stupid okay or more willing to take risks right um, riskier if nothing else okay um i don't know uh, that that's true okay don't pay attention to consequences right. and then when you get when you have the statistics that show that showed within the state of Oklahoma, there was a less than one tenth of one percent 
<laughs> okay. Right. I mean, clearly <laughs> it's not true. So yeah, huff, you know, I say. You know, a whole um, bunch of statisticians are just like, okay. I, you I would know, like that to say be... to Oklahoma, I am giving you side eye right now. Okay. The next level of review is the most difficult for the government to satisfy. And this is known as strict scrutiny. Um, most scholars um, originate um, uh, the use to uh, Brown versus Board, where the Supreme Court said that school districts using race as a way to divide the placement of school children was a suspect classification. And from that case, the court came up with um, uh, strict scrutiny. Um, where the government has to satisfy two questions. First, does the government have a compelling interest? And second, is the law or regulation or policy narrowly tailored to achieve that interest? This is sometimes referred to as the least restrictive alternative to achieve the compelling interest. So the difference between that and the mid-level is the because they both have to have a compelling interest no 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 intermediate scrutiny an important government interest oh okay Not compelling just an uh, important one okay. okay so both questions are more exacting on the government in strict scrutiny because Got you it. have to have a okay. compelling interest but then okay the program or law has to be narrowly tailored, okay? Um, and lawyers and scholars now joke that it's strict in theory, but fatal in fact, that anytime the Supreme Court or any court says it's going to use strict scrutiny to review a law, that law is going down. It's going to be deemed unconstitutional. Well, and in part, that's because laws are written vaguely and broadly to try to cover oh. as many circumstances, circumstances as, possible, as possible. Which, it, and then the court's like, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to be more specific than specific that. Specific because you're using race. And, and this is fascinating because a is lot that of because race is already so divisive? Is that? Well, I mean, it's divisive, but it also, even for strict constructionists, if you look at the Equal Protection Clause and when it was passed, even strict constructionists will go ahead and say the framers of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause wanted to go ahead and protect whom? Former slaves. I was going to say, right? The Okay, uh, so former African-Americans Okay, who well, were mistreated. Okay. Former slaves who were also African American. Okay, but but again, I'm I'm, right. I'm 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 moving it forward into regards to even strict constructionists or like race is a problem. Okay, because even the you know the framers of the Fourteenth Amendment, that was their purpose. Even strict constructionists will go ahead and and sign off on that, right? Okay. Now, what's fascinating to me is. Advocates for other groups or other rights have attempted to convince the Supreme Court to adopt strict scrutiny to protect their interests or rights. 
but they haven't been able to convince the court to do so. So for instance, okay, um, advocates of a woman's right to choose want strict scrutiny to be used, okay, to look at abortion laws. And the Supreme Court has said no. And we will get to some of the abortion tests in just a few moments. Free speech advocates in the 1960s, 70s, have advocated that speech deserves strict scrutiny. Supreme Court has said no. Advocates of gun rights, per the Second Amendment, okay? We want strict scrutiny to be imposed on laws and regulations of guns. And they haven't been able to convince a majority of the court to use strict scrutiny for anything other than race. Why is that? I think it's, well, again, if you go to the use of strict scrutiny, anytime the court uses strict scrutiny, the likelihood is the law is going to be deemed unconstitutional. And I think that gives some members of the court great pause. Great pause. What they're undoing something? They're they're undoing the work of the people's representatives. Okay. And that's a little scary. I mean, you don't want to just I mean, how how much do we want unelected members of the federal judiciary, okay, to be involved in effect with policy making? Right. Right. That's why we have checks and balances, but we don't okay? want any I mean, one and, and this side. This is a democracy. Be, right. right. We don't want any one side to be too strong. Okay. okay, this is a democracy, right? So we don't want the court just willy-nilly going around saying that's unconstitutional, that's unconstitutional. Like, yes, because I mean, that already, would basically put them in charge of the country. Yes, I mean, and and you know, and 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 I understand that some people are like, well, I like, I would prefer that than you know, elected officials. <laughs> okay, and I'm just like, then you've missed the point of democracy. Okay, yeah, okay, I mean. <laughs> You, know, you you should move somewhere else where the courts are in charge. Okay, I mean, so that those okay. are the that's the 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 general, if you will, structure of the tests used with most laws and regulations. The easiest is rational basis. The hardest is strict scrutiny, and in between is intermediate scrutiny. I have to tell you that the next test that you have in your notes is my favorite. <laughs> and I, can I say it? Yeah, go ahead. Void for vagueness. <laughs> a law so vaguely worded that a reasonable person does not know what it is or what is or is not prohibited behavior. Yes. I love that. <laughs> I love that so much as a test. Like, what are you talking about? That's basically what the court is saying. Actually, yes. I don't know if you ever watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, yes, I but did. But she used to say, could you vague that up for me? Yeah. Like when people would say something so vague that she had, like, could you vague that up for me? I love that phrase because I love this idea that people don't know what the prohibited behavior is. They're like, is it legal or is it not legal? And if you can't tell by reading the law, then I'm, I'm with the court. That's too vague. It needs to be. And, and this gets at one of the clear. Funda- yes, in this gets at one of the fundamental purposes of law, 
which is if laws are supposed to tell people what is or is not acceptable, then it has to be clear enough to where an average person, I'm right. not talking about a not smart a lawyer. person. Okay? Not a lawyer. <laughs> not a lawyer. Or a judge. Not a PhD, but just your garden variety average person knows I'm not supposed to speed on this stretch of highway. In the school zone. In a school, yeah, right? I'm not right? supposed to speed in the school zone. You know why? Because I'd run over kids and that's a bad thing. That's right? a like, bad thing. Yes. We all agree that's a bad thing. I mean, very few of us, and if you are one of those people who would run over kids, don't tell me because that's a terrible thing. But like we all agree that's not a good thing. We don't want to run over kids in school zone. We don't want to run over kids anywhere. That's why we so obey when speed. You are in a school zone and the in 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 the sign is flashing, you slow know down. you're supposed to slow down. Right. Right. Okay. Very clear, um, but I liked your example. Yeah, here's a recent example in, uh, in listeners. This does reflect uh, when we're recording this episode. But while the period of time where we're recording this episode is, um, uh, as Nia pointed out uh, earlier in the episode, um, uh, we're talking about late spring. And in the United States currently, there is a lot of inflation going on within the economy. And certain members of the United States Congress, okay, believe that some of the inflationary prices are due to companies price gouging, okay? They understand that Americans want certain goods and services. The supply of those goods, okay, is scarce. So they are raising prices to make even more money. And... And, and a not terribly long ago, an, another example is the Texas power outage. Yes. Where the Texas power companies were charging people, th- what, $30,000, $40,000 bills for the month to heat their yes. homes. Yes. And so there is, a, there is not a, uh, sorry, let me back up. We here in the South regularly get hurricanes. And one of the things that happens after a hurricane is that gas prices go up. Yes. Delivery is an issue. There's other issues. But there is always this question in the back of your mind about price gouging. Are, are these being artificially driven up because it's a good time for people to make money off of, you know, off of other people's misery kind of thing? So, so there was a proposed law submitted by uh, in the U.S. Senate by uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, from Massachusetts, which attempted to prohibit price gouging by companies during an inflationary period as designated by the federal government. But price gouging was so vaguely worded that <laughs> Scholars on both sides of the ideological spectrum would be like, they actually just like came out and said this on the blogosphere. This is so unconstitutional because nobody would know what constitutes price gouging. Right. Okay. And price gouging is itself a concept that is pretty subjective, right? Like Yes, you, you have to provide a definition. Right. Because for... Do you want a whole bunch of companies possibly being prosecuted 
for behavior that they didn't know was actually price gouging. Right. They have they may have raised prices because their suppliers did what to them? Raised prices. Raised prices. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, there's there's reasons. And the other thing about price gouging is if you run your country based on the idea of supply and demand and sort of the what is it the invisible hand of the market thank you adam smith yes. right then if a guy has a thing you want and he's the only guy in town that has the thing you want he could charge whatever he wants to charge for that in our system of economic system it's a capitalist right. system it, it, that's now, what capitalism is you can choose not to buy his thing that that is how you vote against his pricing is, and if enough people choose not to buy it, he will bring the price down because that's again, how capitalism works. So I'm a little, I, I think it's, I think you'd have to be very careful about writing legislation about price gouging. And in particular, you would have to, I would argue, center price gouging on public goods, not private goods. You know, public goods, things like you mentioned, electricity right okay or yeah that was a pretty clear case of price <laughs> okay or again nia you mentioned we live um in an area that suffers from hurricanes right right okay we know this that when the national weather service predicts that a hurricane's going to hit many um uh Company, you know, stores like Home Depot, Lowe's, other appliance stores, they go ahead and raise prices for things like plywood. Right. Okay. Nails, hammers. Nails, hammers, because a lot of people try to board up their homes, their businesses. Right. So the damage is not as great. Okay. So I can even see how price gouging laws might be applicable in that context, right? Because we want actually people to protect their homes before a hurricane, because if they don't, what happens afterwards? Insurance right? prices go up. Insurance prices go up. We find out that some people try to ride it out in their homes that weren't protected, and then, you know, they were killed, et cetera, et cetera. Right. There are a whole bunch of, you know, public harms but nevertheless, you need to give a definition of what constitutes price gouging and for what goods and services. If you don't, okay, it would be impossible to prosecute. Right. Right. Or you'd and prosecute for everything, and that would be and sort and of the, the wild west of prosecution. Like, you know, no, <laughs> that's unacceptable. A related concept, and this is, and sometimes students have a hard time distinguishing the next test with void for vagueness. The next one is over breath, okay? When the court says a law is unconstitutionally overbroad, it's basically saying that both constitutionally protected and constitutionally unprotected behavior, okay, is against the law, okay? A good example of this is with material that is pornographic versus obscene. Basically what the Supreme Court has said over time is 
speech that is pornographic is protected by the First Amendment. Obscene speech isn't. But the difficulty for the government is how do you write a law <laughs> that prohibits the latter but allows the former? Because the line between pornographic and obscene speech, okay, is oftentimes a lot like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. Which one of the, which one of the justices said, I, I can't oh. describe pornography to you, but I know it when I see it? Like there's uh, a... Was, yes, <laughs> uh, uh, Justice Potter Stewart in the okay. uh, Jacobellas case in the 1960s um, wrote in an opinion, <laughs> I cannot define pornography, but I know it when I see it. And he was basically making a critique of the Supreme Court's efforts during the 1950s, 60s, and as we will come to talk about in the 1970s, trying to define what is porn versus what is obscenity, because the government according to the court, can prohibit obscene speech, but it cannot prohibit pornographic. <laughs> and Potter, I, I still love that quote. Potter, Potter Stewart was just a gem on the Supreme Court <laughs> in coming up with pith, pithy phrases. Um, he went ahead and described the Connecticut um, contraception law, which was challenged in the Griswold case, Nia, um, as an uncommonly silly law. <laughs> okay, I, I like it. that. Uncommonly silly. I just that should be a, that should be another one of our T-shirts. Yes. <laughs> Civil discourse colon uncommonly silly. Silly, right? Okay. Except um, that sends the wrong message, but. But but I just like it when justices every once in a while they they strip off the veneer of legal language. Right. Okay. In Latin. Okay. And they just, they just call, they just call things up. <laughs> you know, they just. That is uncommonly silly. That is uncommonly silly. Right. <laughs> I cannot define pornography. I just know it when I see it, which by the way, probably many Americans would be like, I'm right there with you, Justice Stewart. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That is pornographic. How do you know? I just know. Just know. I know okay. by looking at it. Okay. That's um, pornographic. You know, yeah, by the way, that's obscene and I'm never, ever watching or reading that ever again. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and interesting, those two are not based on offensiveness. That's correct. Yes, they're, they're not based on your level of offendedness. How no, offended you are is not the because it, is not the deciding factor here. No, because now we actually have a test coming from the Supreme Court that was created in a case in 1973. So can we move to more specific tests now, Nia? Please. OK, so we're talking about obscenity. Right. And for listeners, you might be wondering, OK, this discussion of pornography and obscenity, how does this touch upon the, first, uh, the U.S. Constitution? Well, it touches upon the First Amendment's protection of freedom of speech. Right. OK. And the court really struggled in the 1950s and 60s to come up with a test to judge government laws 
that prohibited obscene speech. And finally, what they came up with was what's known as the Miller test, um, which uh, was announced by the court in the Supreme Court case of Miller versus California from 1973. And Nia, the Miller test has three parts. Do you want me to share the three parts? Yes, please. Okay, first part, whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the work taken as a whole appeals to purient interests. Now for our listeners who might not know what purient means, it means lustful. Right. <laughs> Although it, it means lustful in a negative way. Yes. Purient is not a positive. No. Okay. That is not a positive entry. Like, yay, naked people. That's not what that's. No, no. Okay. It's supposed to, it, it the court is implying a negative interest there. Yes. Yes. Um, and of course, that part of the test has one of our favorite phrases, the average person. Well, and applying contemporary community standards, standards right? which in some ways I appreciate the court putting in there, recognizing that it, those may change over time or yes. those may change community to community. I yeah, will put because, to you that it is unlikely that the Amish community in Ohio would have the same reaction to a, porn, a piece of pornographic art as the art community in Richmond, right? Yes. They're yes. going to have different standards because their community is going to have different standards. Yes. Very good point. Okay. Second Similarly, a, a naked person in the United States is treated very differently than a naked person in Europe because people in Europe are like, yeah, naked, whatever. Like they yes. have a less, well, they're, they're less, their contemporary community standard. They're less hung up about nudity than we are here in right. the States. Is, yes. is right. Yeah. Second part of the test, whether the work depicts or describes in a patently offensive way, sexual conduct or excretory functions specifically defined by applicable state law. <laughs> in other words, okay. the state has to very clearly say, okay, these kinds of behaviors, okay, are offensive to our residents. Okay? Okay. Third, and here's my favorite part. Okay. Whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. <laughs> I oh. know that, um, how can I put this? Me, me, I, me, I am me. acquainted with Mia's films. A little, yeah, Mia's a little tongue-tied here. I am. Because, I am acquainted because I have with something, films. I have, I have something in our research notes, okay? Right. Which she's having a really difficult time. Uh, I, I, I am acquainted with these films that you mentioned in the notes. Um, only generally in passing, let me put it, I'm not a, a voyeur of these films, nor am I a collector of said films. I don't think there's anything wrong with pornographic film, 
personally, I don't care what you watch. I don't care what you watch. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, that's not know, up to me. You're in, in the, the privacy of your home. As long as everybody in the room is a consenting adult, adult who is both watching, yeah, right? yes. who is both watching and performing, I don't care. I, it, it, that is not my business. But I do. I have seen films where they have attempted to go the literary route. Yes. Um, there is a, uh, and I can't believe I'm going to say these words on a recording, panting at the opera, <clears throat> which is a version of the story Phantom of the Opera. Uh, and I will leave that to the listener's imagination as to where that goes next. Um, one, hilarious in the sense of the costuming involved but uh, such as it was but also i think they were trying to satisfy the third part of the miller test right and in 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 what happened after the supreme court announced the miller test nia is that the <laughs> i'm sure uh, scenes were added to lots of pornographic yeah, the, the, films the, the producers the, the writers <laughs> the makers of pornographic art wanted to go ahead and put the burden on the government to satisfy the third prong. So what they did was they added plot lines that are just absolutely hilarious. At least they're hilarious <laughs> to me. Right? They are to me too. They're so bad. Okay. They're so bad because they are clearly designed to go ahead oh. and address that part of the Miller test. Exactly. They're not, they're not. So you had to... cases arise in federal courts where you had actors discussing the constitution and then all of a sudden an orgy broke out, right? <laughs> Which as we know, just happens all the time. It happens science. all the time, right? <laughs> uh, they were rehearsing Shakespeare. <laughs> Again, and uh, an orgy it, it, breaks it, it out. Wait for it, an orgy breaks out. Um, they were studying the periodic table, okay? <laughs> and an orgy broke out okay um uh, of course my favorite is uh alice in wonderland okay the oh. pornographic version oh. um and 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 i now know why the the uh, cheshire uh, cat always has a grin on its face yeah uh but nevertheless okay uh, uh, well and the thing is the the real the real problem with with these tests they're so um they can be so subjective right like okay. you can't uh, okay can i just i'm stating for the record and please if you're out there and you made this film please don't sue me painting of the opera is a terrible movie <laughs> it, it it's a terrible movie based on what we would normally critique a movie for right terrible yeah. acting terrible lighting right right but that's not the point of the film. Film, no, it's not. The, the point of the film is something entirely different. And for the point of the film, it gets it gets across what it needs to get across. Let me, let me say yes. it that way. Yes. Uh, and and it is a perfectly innocuous sort of there you go. That's porn, right? Yes. It that the fact, the fact that to satisfy a Supreme Court test, they're adding these elements. Okay in part just makes me laugh simply because I'm like, can you be any more transparent that you want to put the burden on the government to have to explain in open court 
right. that X movie <laughs> is not actually it doesn't have any lacks, kind of lacks literary value. <laughs> serious, serious literary. Okay, so yeah, not just any literary value, but serious literary. So we're now involved in a debate about the semantics of serious literary or serious political or serious scientific what you're going to call you're going to call phds in the sciences to go ahead and discuss okay the extent to which they got the periodic table correct or right. you know they discuss the come on well and um i have read many many articles that lack serious scientific yes. value yes <clears throat> just because you get published doesn't mean you have serious scientific value. Yeah. So I, I'm throwing out there that if you're going to hold a porn to that standard, you should probably also hold generalized publishing to that standard. Oh, you goodness gracious. Yes. Right. So I, I'm feeling, I feel a bit sad. I also, I do like that the court said that the court tied it to local communities, state laws, that kind of thing, allowing that local officials and local laws would reflect what a community accepts or doesn't accept. Yeah, because it's almost impossible to come up with a national norm in right. a country as large and as diverse as the United States about what is or is not, you know, pornographic versus obscene. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Conservative parts of the country versus and of course, you know, that's part conservative of the, parts of the country. And part of the difficulty now, uh, Nia, is that uh, the creation, distribution, and viewing of porn uh, cuts across national lines, right? Oh, it's part of the Commerce Clause. Well, I mean, in, in, you get into issues of the fact that many consumers of porn, okay, aren't going to a local bookstore or a local movie right. theater, okay? They're watching porn on the internet, right? okay? And you may not know as the consumer where the porn was made, what company is distributing it, okay? Where they got their actors from, et cetera, et cetera, right? Right. So, you know, that part of the Miller test is becoming very problematic in application because it's almost impossible for a local prosecutor to go ahead and say, <laughs> this is bad in my area, right? Yeah, well, okay, my... but it wasn't produced in your area and it wasn't intended just for your area. Area, that's right, okay. And um, so I, I'm assuming that this is separate from the question of the, uh, the consent of the persons involved, right? Everybody has to be over a certain age yeah, well, in, to in, either in, consent to view or to consent to participate. Yeah, and and there also um, when we talked about uh, void for vagueness and over breath, um, when Congress has attempted to impose some laws or standards regarding obscenity, and in particular the use of children, the Supreme Court has declared them unconstitutional simply because the laws were written either so vague that it was impossible to go ahead and know, okay, what was or was not acceptable, okay, 
uh, and I'm talking about the uh, uh, the Reno case from the mid '90s. Um, but then the court went ahead and said um, uh, a law that was passed uh, uh, in regards to protecting children, the depiction of children in porn, was overbroad. Okay, because it was almost impossible to go ahead and figure out whether or not the actors who were portraying children were actually children. Right, because there are actually softwares that will allow you to de-age yes. an okay. actress, yes. often actresses more than actors. Yes, um, but nevertheless, you actually have, even in popular shows and movies right. that don't have anything to do with porn or obscenity, you have actors and actresses who are 25, 26, 27 playing, teenagers. playing teenagers. Right. right. Glee, the entire cast of Glee. Glee, right? Okay. Is, was not teenage. And there's reasons for that. I mean, there's part, there's reasons. Some of it's child labor. Some of it's that you want actors that are more seasoned, right? Like there's, there's yeah, all there, kinds of yeah. reasons. But, but, and that's not to slam Glee, by the way. Glee's wonderful. No, but, um, but, but it's just an example of how right. difficult it is to pass laws, okay, to address a public policy problem while also satisfying the constitution. Right. Okay. Right, the you scourge know. of pornography, which I well, think is I mean, what Nixon called it. Yeah, and, the, the, yes, the, the, the scourge of pornography. And but it I turns mean, out the scourge of pornography has not brought us down as a country. Um, no, yeah, I mean, it's, it's- We're working on that in other ways, but that's yeah. not, it's not <laughs> yeah, been, yeah, yeah, not been yeah, that. Right. But oh, oh, sorry. Do you have another favorite test that you wanted to, to address? I do. And it's because it's the title of a Tom Clancy novel. Ah, clear and present danger. <laughs> clear and yes. present danger test. Yes. Um, the, that is a phrase that is used a lot dear to my heart in Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness. Yes. Um, it's, a, it's a phrase we use pretty often, right? Does this thing present a clear and present danger? That's right. And in, in, in that phrase is associated with a constitutional law test created by the Supreme Court in the case of Schenck versus the United States in 1917. So this was a World War I case. Um, and the government had passed a law, okay, uh, the uh, Alien and Sedition Act, okay? Well, excuse me. The Sedition Act, the Alien and Sedition Act was for was passed uh, in the late 1700s. So I was going to say by Act. Adams, right? Yeah, yeah, during the Adams administration. So the 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 Sedition Act, and basically this was a law, okay, that would allow the federal government to arrest anybody um, that would harm the U.S. Um, war effort, okay. Right. In, in, in listeners, Schenck was a communist, right? Who was basically saying he was a socialist who passed oh, out. Yeah, he was a socialist pamphlets. who passed out pamphlets encouraging young male young men to not, not uh, participate in the draft for the right. war to burn their draft cards, basically. Yes. OK. Um, and the Supreme Court, in a unanimous vote, said that the law was constitutional. And they did so by creating a test um, that courts could use to evaluate 
laws, okay? Um, and, and here's the test in its uh, full iteration. The question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. Men not going off to the draft. That's right. Because okay. then We're, your army falls in numbers and you lose, and then the next thing you know, everybody's speaking German. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry, there are several steps in between that catastrophic failing. But, but, but that but was the, basically the logic or the argument that the government made. Right. You can't okay. just go around burning your we, draft card. That's not okay. Because basically the government made the argument in the court agreed that the government doesn't have to wait for an effort to overthrow the government to stop the effort to overthrow the government, right? As okay. soon as somebody says, we're going to overthrow the government, the government can throw you in jail. Yes. Okay. And that held for a while. It, it held until the late 1960s. But the difficulty with the clear and present danger test was that, like with most of these tests, there are parts of it that are very subjective depending on who applied the test, i.e. Right. the federal judge in a particular case. Right. What is right? substantive evil? Yeah. What is a substantive evil, right? What is a clear and present danger, right? Right. Okay. How present is present? And how clear does the danger have to be, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, we're back to Buffy. Could you vague this up for me? <laughs> right. I mean, and where this all comes to a head, Nia, is in the late 1940s into the 50s, where you had the federal government and state governments prosecuting communists. Oh. Okay, because well, and then in the in the sixties in the late sixties, it would also have been hippies, uh, right? Anti-war down with the war and don't go to Vietnam and move to okay. Canada. Okay, again, people telling you to burn your draft card. Okay, um, and and with, with the communists, part of the you know part of the difficulty was Karl Marx went ahead and argued that at some point the worker class would overthrow the capitalist class. Right. So you're talking about political theory that is discussing revolution. <laughs> yeah, revolution, the overthrowing, if you will, of the ex existing you know, societal structures, right? Well, the government is like, well, we can't have a bunch of communists running around saying that because eventually a bunch of Americans are going to believe that and they're going to want to do what? Overthrow the government. Overthrow the government. Which we can't have. And eventually some federal judges were like, but they're just talking about it, right? Right. You know, they're just a bunch of people in coffee shops or in classrooms. I was going to say they're beatnik writing poems. That's yeah, not right. How, how dangerous are they? Yeah, how serious is this? So eventually the Supreme Court, in a case that has absolutely horrific case facts, Brandenburg versus Ohio. Um, Brandenburg was an officer in the KKK, 
who gave a series of speeches in the state of Ohio, basically telling his audience that they should go ahead and kill members of the Supreme Court, the president, and members of Congress. Okay, because, that's bad. Because they were all enemies. But he's just talking about it. And Ohio prosecutes him for violating their syndicalism law, right? The case goes to the Supreme Court, and a unanimous Supreme Court says, yeah, the clear and present danger test is just too vague, okay? Um, it doesn't work in theory. It doesn't work in practice. We're going to replace it with a new test. The government has to show that the speech in question will create imminent lawless action. Okay, so, so you and I are standing around on campus. Yes. And we're having one of those rabble-rousing moments, right? We're both standing on soapboxes, and we're like, down with the Board of Visitors. They're the ones who raise your tuition. Rah, 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 rah. And we're just basically, and we're saying, we should fire them all, right? That's not, and then we say, they're meeting upstairs. Let's go now. And we start in that direction. We have now gone from vaguely saying this ought to happen to this is now an imminent threat. Okay, so you got the imminent part, but the next thing the government has to show is lawless action. Oh, we have to be armed. Well, or, we have or, to be... or are we breaking the law by going up and interjecting ourselves into a board of visitors meeting? What if the board, board of Visitors was in the open session part of their agenda? Are we breaking the law? No, nothing has happened except that we're yeah. just except that we're just being sort of a loud nuisance, right? We're, yes. yes. And, and being a nuisance is not against the law most of the time. <laughs> most of the time, right? Okay. The, example, the example I like, to, I like to give my students is, let's say you take one of my tests. And as you're leaving the classroom or you're leaving the building, you say, man, that test was hard. I would like to kill Professor Augenbaugh. Okay. I said, could the government prosecute you for that speech? And they just pause. And I say, more than likely not. I was going to okay. say no, because you haven't. Because I, I would it, like to is not the same as I'm yes. going to. I'm going to where you with this gun that I have in my pocket. Yeah, where you explained how you're going to go ahead and kill me. Right. And when you're going to kill me. I'm going to follow him home tonight from class. Yeah, class and not, like, yeah, I'm gonna, an elaborate plan, in which case yeah, that's you right. find that that's a. Yes. Okay. So if they had found the manifesto of the gentleman in. It, and I use gentleman here in the completely opposite word um, because I cannot say what I would say about him. Um, the Buffalo shooter. Yes. Uh, if they had found his manifesto and his plan. Could they have detained him? Yes. Right. Because he's showing it a, a, an imminent danger and sure. of a lawless act. Like he had gathered the weapons. He had yes. explained what he was going to do. He was clearly preparing for, but um, even still, murder. Think, think about how subjective this is. Right. You know what is imminent? 
Is tomorrow imminent? Right. Is this the two hours from now? Is this 10 days from now? What does that? Okay. Yeah, that's, that's Okay. And what is lawless, right? Because a lot of lawless, lawlessness occurs not because you planned it, but because you showed up and did X and somebody else was there and they responded to your X with Y. Right. And your intent was not necessarily lawlessness, but what you said or did generated a response from somebody else. And now both of you are engaged in lawless behavior. Hmm. And one could argue, and we are not going to get too terribly political. And I know we need to wrap up and it sounds to me like we have other tests we're going to need to talk about. Oh yes. In another we episode. Even- we haven't even gotten to one of my favorites, the infamous lemon test, which actually um, actually comes from a, a, a name of a court case. Yeah, as opposed to the squeezy thing that you, that <laughs> yeah. you put in uh, juice. Um, but before we go on this episode, so it sounds to me like that that could potentially be the argument that the government is making about protesters on the January 6th, on the day of January 6th, 20, sorry, 2020. Yes, is that, that... Is, that is part of their logic because some okay. of the defense attorneys have raised the imminent lawless action test as a defense, right? Government, how can you show that what we did, okay, was intended to be this? Yes. How is our behavior? How is the behavior of my client not protected by the First Amendment? Right, and hence why Donald Trump is not in prison. Because he his speech may have been rabble rousing, but it didn't necessarily it you would have to prove that his intent was to encourage people. Ah, yes. Oh, yes. so we so we have more to talk about with this. Okay. Um, listeners, we're gonna stop there, but we're gonna come back and finish that discussion because I want to talk about intent with this, which yes. I think is another element of this. Um, and then we have some other tests we're gonna talk about as well. Yes. So Thank you, Augie. This has been really interesting. And I didn't realize they had this many tests, so I'm sure there's more that we haven't. Nia, even when we do part two of this. There'll still be some left over? There's going to be other (laughs) tests. I just went ahead and collected, if you will, uh, some of the the most prominent or frequently used tests, right? Um, Heck, there's one in, in my research notes that if you're not an administrative law scholar, you're like, huh, what are you talking about? But it actually has been discussed with some regularity, okay, among government officials and court members in the last few years. So, okay, so we will get a little bit of a teaser. A little bit of a teaser. Yes, we will get to that in the next episode. Then sounds good. Thank you, Augie. Thank you, Nia. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this.